0: Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you this morning. It's not very pretty outside, is it? I hope you all brought umbrellas. I've been thinking we should totally have little angel umbrellas at the doors, don't you think, with little logos and that sort of stuff? I think that's so hospitable. Um, Someone may do that at some point. This morning, we are going to get into chapter 2 of Acts. And before we do so, let's center ourselves with a good prayer. The Lord be with, and be with you. Let us pray. God, on this dark and stormy day, we ask for your light in this space to fill us with your spirit, to give us hope for the future and inspire us as we study the way that your first century followers helped develop your church, that we may be renewed in the development of ours in this 21st century. I ask your prayers upon those in our community who need them most especially those who need your healing touch. Pray for those who will meet their death today, that they may rise in the newness of life. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A quick reminder, if you are not receiving email notices about this class, please do sign up. There are sign-up sheets at the doors front and the side so that if you have not received an email from susan reminding you about class and what we're going to be studying then please do sign up or make sure that susan's got the right email address for you because occasionally people change their addresses and forget to tell us and so we want to make sure that you are on that list also There are schedules, little bookmark schedules at both doors, grab one. This is a nice way to invite someone to come with you. Um, We have a number of people who invite friends to come here who go to other churches because nobody's perfect. And they come (laughs) to Bible study and who knows, maybe they really find a good connection here. And so grab a few of these if you want to hand them out. Um, It's a great way to invite a friend to come with you to St. Michael for a feel good experience. Last week, we started Acts of the Apostles, and as a quick recap of chapter 1 of Acts, we see Jesus having resurrected, speaking to his disciples, and giving them the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds them that the Spirit will come, that he's not staying around forever, but that God's Spirit will be with them to help continue their work. Beyond that, Jesus ascends into heaven, which is important. We We see a little bit of that echo in chapter 2, and the disciples choose a new 12th person, right? I keep not saying 12th man because of the A&M people in here. (laughs) I know. I don't want to give you that much. Um, But now the apostles are a full 12 again to reference the 12 tribes of Israel as a new creation, and they feel complete once more. A few questions came up from last week. Um... Hey, Susan, would you mind closing this door? Thank you. A few questions came up from last week First there is a question that's a relatively easy one, which is about the casting lots Um, As a note real quickly The communication cards that are in the pews in front of you are a great way to ask questions Do feel free to raise your hand and ask in the moment if you need some clarity or if you want me to say whatever I said perhaps in a different way to just help Um, make sure that everyone understands what's going on. But if you've got another question, please feel free to leave those on the cards, drop them at the tables, and we'll be able to raise them at the next meeting. Question of casting lots. So If you remember last week, we talked about how Matthias was chosen to replace Judas by casting lots. They picked two really good candidates, they cast lots, and one was picked. The question is whether the casting lots in this Portion of acts is an intentional echo back to the way that Jesus's clothes were divided at the foot of the cross And so the answer to that is very easily. Yes, but it's a bigger. Yes Casting lots was not something that was explicitly Jewish or you know Something that perhaps Jesus's followers would have done because it was explicitly sacred What it was was a way to figure out what God or the gods really wanted people to do. It's a divination kind of thing. It's claromancy or clairvoyancy. Um, It has that same sort of root in trying to figure out the spirit of God or the gods. So in the same way you might read tarot cards or that sort of thing, they would have cast lots. Their if you look at ancient dice, so to speak, they're not like what we would consider dice. They were, in essence, rocks that had different symbols placed on them, and there were people who would have specialized in reading the symbols. And so in the same way you might have someone read the tea leaves, you know, at the end of a cup of tea, or something like that, um, people would roll these rocks and depending on the combination and the placement of where these symbols were and which ones came up together, they would somehow figure out what they were supposed to do. So it's not quite like, you know, red over here and black over there. It's not like a roulette wheel or something like that. It's a bit more complicated. And so people would have specialized in being able to interpret the lots as they were cast. Does that kind of help a little bit? Okay, so it's nothing to do with Israelites. Lots of people were doing this all over the place in their own way. They just happened to use the same method here because they wanted to figure out what God wanted them to do. Second question came about my reference to God not caring about who wins a football game. (laughs) The the question, I think, is a good one. The question really is, it, it it was found disturbing that I said God wouldn't care about the football game, not because of it being a football game, but because of the kind of fundamental idea, wouldn't God care about whatever I care about? Which I think is a really good question. And so, not football. But in general, when we care about something, I think for many of us, the, not assumption, but the, um, what we were taught is that God would care because we care. I think that's a very common understanding. I think that most of us would, even if we weren't able to articulate it that clearly, have a general sense that if I think something's important, then God's kind of with me in that, right? God would think it's important because I think it's important. I want to name that as being very common. I think a lot of people believe that. And I also want to say with as generous a heart as I can that is completely opposite wrong. We are not here to get God to care about what we care about. Everything that we learn from Scripture is meant to encourage us to care about what God cares about. Do you see that? We very easily it's so human for us to think that we are so important that God would care about what we care about. Or, given, some, given the benefit of the doubt, that God loves us so much that God would care about what we care about. That is almost wholly unbiblical. Might feel good, but that is really not what you see in most of the Bible. I can never say all of it because you can basically find anything you want in the Bible. The general story of God's work in the world is getting humanity, us, to conform or to lean in or to become concerned with what God is concerned with. That's why this stuff is hard. That's why I have said in many different ways over the course of the last year, someone's calling someone. Okay, you got it. That's why I've said many times, in different ways, that being nice, being polite, has really nothing to do with Christianity. It's fine. Be nice. You know, be polite. It, that's that's all. That's not a problem. But Jesus is not calling us to be nice. Jesus is calling us to be holy, to be a light in the darkness, to love fiercely. And sometimes that means not being nice. How many times have we been in a situation where saying something to a person we love is going to be really hard, but it needs to be said. And we have such, we are so clear that it is the best way to love them and yet, it could undermine the relationship. We're not called to put one another above God. We're called to live courageously, not easily, into what God really wants for us. And so when I say things like, God doesn't care who wins the football game, I really, I really to my core believe He doesn't. It has nothing to do with us. In fact, it has nothing to do with us. That is really the point. If we can flip what is very human, thinking that we would actually change God's priorities, then I think we can really begin to follow this way with with some real conviction. Any follow-up to that? Good. Chapter 2. What do you think, red or purple? Mm, I'm feeling purple. Okay. Chapter 2. Wow. That's not terribly purple, is it? Chapter 2 has three sections. The first, we get the Holy Spirit arrives. The second section is a really good one, and we're gonna vet this quite a bit. We hear Peter's first sermon And it's a pretty significant one Lastly and as a result of Peter's sermon We see all of the very first converts to this new way of life So we're gonna start with the arrival of the Holy Spirit So if you turn in your Bibles to the first or the second chapter of Acts. By the way, have I told you I'm very excited that we have Bibles in the church church now? It's so good. So I'm going to have to start saying from the pulpit, turn in your Bibles to something. It's going to be great. Okay, so (laughs) turn your Bibles to chapter 2 of Acts. Luke, remember Luke, our author. Luke writes, when the day of Pentecost had come, they, all the disciples, We're all together in one place. So before we get in, we need to figure out how in the world did the day of Pentecost come before Pentecost, right? We are Episcopalians, we know Pentecost, right? I mean, we celebrate this after Easter. And so it would be very confusing if you're really paying attention. You know, wait a minute, spirit has not come yet, right? We have not seen tongues of flame. We have not done all that stuff. But Luke says when the day of Pentecost had arrived. What? Pentecost does not mean our tongues of fire on the apostles yet. Pentecost means the day when Moses brought the law down the mountain after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. That happened 50 days after Passover. So let's remember our Exodus story. For those of you who were with me on Sunday morning, we just heard this. Israelites are in captivity in Egypt. Moses shows up. Pharaoh says no. He says yes, and Pharaoh says no, and then lots of people die, and it's a terrible story. And then the Israelites get out of Egypt. They go across the Red Sea, and more people die, and it gets worse. But they get saved, and they go across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And when Moses goes up the mountain— Moses hears from God, who reveals the Ten Commandments, and he brings them down the mountain 50 days after they had eaten the Passover meal. Remember, Passover is that tenth plague where God passed over the Israelites who put the blood of the Lamb over their doors. 50 days after Passover, God reveals the law. for the Jews, that is everything. Right, the law is so, so critical to everything that they are. At that fifty days, they remember every year. It becomes a intertwined with Shavat, which is a festival of harvesting and, and that sort of stuff. It's a it's grains and growing things and all that stuff I don't understand. So farming stuff um, that we eat. Shavat becomes linked with Pentecost. Pentecost. 50 days. Penta. Okay? Pentecost has existed for a long time, and it's a big festival. Jerusalem is the place where good Jews go as a pilgrimage. And so if you were able, and if you couldn't figure it out economically, as a good Jew, you're supposed to go to Jerusalem relatively frequently. It's not necessarily meant to be a one-off in your life, but for some people, maybe it is only once that they would ever get there. But for some, it might be an annual pilgrimage, and Passover is one of those festivals that you would mark on your calendar. If you're going to go, and maybe especially if you're only going to go once in your life, Passover is one of those times when you're going to make it to Jerusalem. So the Jews are coming from all over the place. Jews live beyond just Israel, So there would have been Jews all over the world, the world, the Middle East at that point, and they would have all come to Jerusalem for Passover. That's important to note because when they go out of this room and they start talking to all the people who are there, we should ask the question, why are all these people there? They are there for Passover. Pentecost. I've said Passover multiple times. Yes, they're both P's. Sorry, Pentecost. The festival of weeks is happening And the apostles are waiting in this room because Jesus told them to wait. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. This is a huge moment and I want to make sure we know that, all, that we can read this in two ways. The first way, which is typically how we would read this as Christian people, is we want to follow Jesus, we think he's a good guy, and the Spirit helps us. And it began on this day. And 50 days after Easter, why do we celebrate Easter when we do? Passover. Passover. Why does Easter move and Christmas doesn't? Because Easter and Passover are Jewish holidays. Christmas is not. Christmas is locked in because that became— Romans don't like unpredictable stuff, right? And so the church nailed down Christmas. That's a Christian thing. Easter is all based on the lunar calendar because the Jewish calendar is lunar. And that's why it moves all over the place. And just for fun, if you've never looked at it, in the back of your prayer book, there is a very difficult equation to figure out the golden number. And the golden number is how we know year to year when Easter is. And it's sort of a fun nerd moment. So don't... (laughs) Don't do it now because you will not hear anything else I say. Um, but look in the back of your prayer book at some point at the golden number, and it's got all of the dates of Easter through 2050 in the prayer book just so you can plan your holidays. Yes. Mm. Why don't Easter and Passover always occur at the same time? They are usually close. But occasionally people... I, I would have to say the Jews would say we're wrong we sort of did a lunar based calendar number to figure out Easter that is basically the Jewish calendar But it isn't the Jewish calendar because Lord knows we can't do that. And so we had to create our own thing It works most of the time But yes, there are occasionally years where it really doesn't line up the way you would expect and that's because it's not Exactly the same way of figuring out the date. It's very close and it's lunar That's really all I want you to know is that's why Easter moves around is that it's lunar Um, so Easter at Passover Pentecost comes 50 days after because Pentecost came 50 days after Passover and so when we celebrate Pentecost here we celebrate that the Spirit came down And we tend to do funky things and we've got red all over the place and little white doves and, you know, in some churches they do things like fire breathers. You remember that? (laughs) It was so good. Um, I know I missed it last year because we had monkeys and things like that, but stilt walkers and whatever. Who knows what it'll be this year? You'll have to come and see. So we celebrated because the Spirit comes and lives with us and helps us follow Jesus, there is a second reason why the story is told this way. How many of you have ever had a tongue of fire fall on your head? Not me. Why then was this story told so, uh, oh, what's the right word? Um, so graphically? We could say it's because it happened this way. That's okay. I mean, if, if it makes, if, For any reason you need that fire fell from the sky on top of the apostles. That's fine. It's no problem. However, Luke is a storyteller. Luke wants to note that this is not your grandma's Pentecost. All right? Because the Jews are reading this. And the Jews remember what happened at Pentecost. Moses went up a mountain and he came down with the law. Jesus has gone up to heaven and has sent down the Spirit. This has one upped the Jewish Pentecost. The point of telling the story this way is to make sure that all the Jews know what God did has been done better. In Jesus. In all ways, Jesus is, the story of Jesus is told to one up these great luminaries of the Jewish tradition. Not to put the Jews down, but to try and shake people to see that God has done something new and better. God wants you to see that this is actually the way that He wants you to live. As just a general aside, and this is not something I want to necessarily unpack right now. As Christian people, we have to be real careful not to be anti-Semitic. It's easy to do what I just did and take that too far. You can say that God's doing something new. God wants you to do this new thing. And if you say it's better, like I just did, that's maybe okay. Okay but we have to be careful to stop Because when you take that too far That's when you get the problems that we can all remember And as christian people it's never meant to say anything negatively about judaism but we also have to Accept I think as christian people that god's doing a new thing And that the message was somehow missed in total, and we see that totality and completeness in Jesus. And so we have to say it confidently and clearly, but still lovingly, right? That's just a little note. Okay. Pentecost moment happens. The apostles are filled with this courage and confidence and clarity, and they begin to pour out of this room and tell people The story of Jesus. When the disciples received the Spirit, they began to preach. And that takes us to the second section today. If you look at verse five Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound, the crowd gathered. That's interesting, isn't it? At the sound. Remember, We said there was a sound like the rush of a violent wind that filled the entire house. So if you can imagine, you're just casually walking down a city street, and all of a sudden it sounds like there's a tornado in the building next to you. You're going to want to figure out what in the world is that, right? Like a train coming through. The sound gathered them, and they were bewildered because each one heard them, the disciples, speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, "Are not all these who are speaking Galileans, Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs in our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? In one of my favorite lines. But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. (laughs) I love that. What you have are all of these people from all over the Roman Empire, right? We just heard a list of all these different places. All these people spoke different languages. They're all coming to Jerusalem for the festival. And the apostles, as they come out of this room, are speaking to them such that they hear it in their own language. Does that mean that all the apostles were speaking different languages? Maybe. Or does that mean in this story that God's message through Jesus is so universal that everyone can hear and understand? The context for this moment harkens back to the telling of the Tower of Babel in Genesis. Don't turn there, but as a reminder, in the 11th chapter of Genesis— we hear this little story. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's put this into context. Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood. Now we're at this story. Okay? The whole earth had one language and the same words, and they said, the people, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And the Lord said, look, They are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth. God created a perfect garden for humanity. We messed it up. We had a new chance to start over again and we messed it up. So God brought a flood to do a new creation and what this moment is saying is that we are messing it up again. The pridefulness of the people of Babel to build a tower in the heavens means they were seeking again to be like God. And so God undermines the pridefulness in the very same way that our pridefulness will be undermined as well. This is an excellent example of God does not care about what we care about just because we care about it. The people of Babel cared very much to build a big tower that did not work out for them. God wants us to be living more in sync with his will, not the other way around. In this Pentecost moment in Acts, God is overturning the mess of the languages such that everyone is able to understand this divine cosmic story. The apostles are the means by which God will spread this story beyond Jerusalem. And it begins now. As we look on, Peter comes out and he says, they are not drunk. They are simply telling you about the man, Jesus. Peter's message is his great sermon. This is the one that Peter gives. Peter will say lots of other things, but if anyone ever references to you Peter's sermon, this is it in chapter two. Peter begins to tell one big story starting from the beginning. I won't read the whole thing to you, but the essence of this story is Peter starts with God's hope for humanity, tells the story of how we messed up and God kept coming back and trying to get our attention over and over and over again. And we might have heard it a little bit, but we missed it again. We get the law, we sort of mess that up. We hear the prophets speaking, and we sort of messed that up. And now Jesus had come in the flesh. This Son of God has come to earth to try and shake our attention. In essence, to rescue us. What is interesting about this is we don't get the kind of Christology that we would expect. Christology is that fancy theology word. It's, in essence, the philosophy of, of Jesus as the Christ. What we see in the first three Gospels that were written, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, is a lot of Jesus of Nazareth. By the time we get to the Gospel of John, we get a lot of Jesus the Christ. That is a theological progression that the first century Christians, and beyond, we're still doing this, the first century Christians tried to develop around Jesus not just being a good teacher, no, better than that, not just being a great prophet or king, no, better than that, but actually being the son of God, and maybe better than that, God incarnate, that progression took some time. Jesus obviously didn't just lay it all out there or else it would have been there in all the Gospels plainly. Instead, what we see is the Christian groups asking questions and trying to figure out really who is Jesus? Because they know he's not just a new Moses, okay, not just a new David, we got it, Not even just a new Adam, but something even better. It takes 300 years for the church to finally really nail down fully human and fully divine. Up until that point, lots of people had their own sort of nuanced opinions of Jesus. And we see those slightly in all of the Gospels. We see here in Acts that the development of the Christ understanding of Jesus is not really there yet. But Peter does understand God's done something very new. God has remade everything that we have been expecting. All of this Messiah stuff that you've been waiting for, it's here. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything you have been wanting What is interesting about this moment to me is that Peter articulates what I would say is the rescue mission that God does through Christ. It is not enough for us to like Jesus. It's not even enough for us to want to be like Jesus. We need to be saved by Jesus. And that salvation is not some exclusive, close-minded kind of saved like many of us have heard about. It's a quite literally saved by the fact that we can't do this on our own. We are saved from our simple humanity. And Peter begins to unpack that, and in doing so, converts a lot of those good Jews who've come to Jerusalem for the festival. In fact, as we hear, 3,000 are baptized that day. So that's the end of Peter's sermon section, and before we move on to the last, any questions? These first converts, your commentary by N.T. Wright has a great image that I wanted to use today. He uses the image, imagine that you're driving down the wrong road. Figuring out that you're on the wrong road can be annoying, maybe even embarrassing, but stopping and turning around and getting on the right road is relatively easy, right? I mean, we've all done that, some of us daily, and finding that right road is pretty easy. Now imagine that you are sledding down a slick mountainside. Anyone who's ever been sledding knows once you get going, to stop, you've got to just wait to hit the bottom or risk seriously hurting yourself. And so if you're on a real slick mountainside and you are going fast, and halfway down you realize that the end of this trip is over a cliff, what do you do? Turning around is not possible. Stopping is basically not possible. At that point, the only thing you can really hope for is someone to ask actually rescue you. Someone who has a good footing. Someone who is able to stabilize themselves and grab you before you fall off the cliff. And in essence, what these apostles do is tell the story of Jesus as a rescuer. They begin to develop the idea that the Messiah is not just a military leader or king in the way that they have always thought it would be, but instead the Messiah is now saving us from imminent doom. As human people, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot save ourselves. We need God to save us from what will ultimately be our slow, maybe fast, demise. One of the great lies in Christianity that I see all the time everywhere and that people tell one another, I know out of love, but stop it, is God doesn't give you more than you can handle. That is terrible theology, my friends. Don't say that to anybody. It might feel good in the moment because typically we say that to someone who is in a serious bad place. And what we really want to, we really want to do more than, I'm so sorry. We want to say more. And so typically we go to that bad place where we say, God won't give you more than you can handle actually that is completely wrong because God definitely, we all have more than we can handle on our own. If we didn't, none of this makes sense. We're being saved from a life that we cannot handle on our own. We are being saved from our own inability to resist temptation, our own imperfections. That is the point of all of this is that God comes in to fill in those gaps to hold us up when we cannot get up That when we hit the bottom and we think nothing else is going to can bring us down any lower That bottom is God, right? I think I said this to you last year that dumb footprints thing that I remember seeing in the 80s all over the place Right is so true. It's so good, right? Why is it that in the hardest parts of my life, I only saw one set of footprints? Because that's when I carried you, right? That is so good. Tell people that God won't let them go. That's what you say. Don't tell them that they won't get more they can handle. We all do. But God will never leave us or let us go. That's the good stuff. And that's really what Peter says to all of these people is that God is not just creating parameters of laws around our life. God's actually with us. God came to be like us, to actually assume everything, to take the hit of our own imperfection so that we don't have to. And in doing that, we are actually saved. These people loved the story. If you look at verse 37, when the crowds heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you, for your children, and for all. This is the good stuff. Peter tells this story, and people's response is is what all of our response is when we get hit with the truth of Christ. What do we do? And Peter says, you repent. And repentance is not this ugly thing. Repentance is based on the word that means to turn around So when you repent you are turning Just like you're on the wrong road you turn and get on the right one A repentance is a return to the right way Jesus has set up the right way for us And when we are struck in the face with the truth of god And all of us are over and over again i mean i don't know a person who tries to live faithfully who doesn't have experiences regularly where they're like struck in the face and they think what have i been doing this is how it should be right how many of us make mistakes that are just they're stupid and we do it and we think why why did i do that i know better than that but i did this anyway it's because we're human And we come back, and we repent, and we return, and we get on the right road again, and we are forgiven every time we are forgiven, because God wants us back every time. Nothing can separate us. We say that every Sunday. We cannot be separated from this, but the reason we come to church is because we forget, and we come to church. I remember someone said, you know, every preacher's basically got one sermon, because you know this. All it is is being reminded because we forget. And in this moment, 3,000 people turn and get on the right road, and they begin to build this new Christian community. Luke writes in chapter 42 they, these new converts, along with the Apostles, devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Where have you heard that? Where do we actually say we will commit to the Apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers? Anyone? Baptism. Baptism. Every time... Those of you who don't go to a different service when you see the baptismal font, which I know you do, (laughs) do you know, last time we have, I want you to know, and you could tell all your friends, I run a very tight baptism service, and just because years ago, it may have taken an hour and a half to have a full Eucharist service with baptism does not mean it still does. We baptized, what was it, six kids just a few weeks ago, 62 minutes, okay? I will not keep you in church too long. I know you have stuff to do. So do not turn and go downstairs when you see the baptismal font. I see you do it. I am in the hallway when you walk by me as you are going down to the parish hall, okay? Do not. So—and why I don't want you to is because a few times a year, we all renew our baptismal covenant— And we actually say, Will you do this again? And we all say, With God's help. This is really the structure of what it means to be a Christian community. These four things, right? So we're going to just hit them real fast teaching, fellowship, worship, breaking bread, and prayers. That's it. That is what our lives are meant to be grounded in. If you are not doing one of those things, you are seriously crippling the effect of the others. I'm going to say that again. Doing all four matters. Doing two or three of them will never be 50 to 75% as effective it will be less. It is an ancient way of being that has been proven over centuries to actually keep us on the right road. I mean, my hope for all of us is that we stop having that feeling of we have been on the wrong road again, return to the right one. But the truth is, we're all gonna keep doing that. Maybe let's do it less. Maybe rather than having that feeling daily, you have it weekly. Maybe not having that feeling weekly, you have it monthly. If you do monthly, I'm impressed. But we are meant to do all four of those things. So for your homework, I'd love for you to consider, and by consider I don't mean give it 20 seconds as you're walking out of the room. I mean at some point, actually write... Those four things down and put words under each of them about how you do that. How do you pray? How do you learn? How do you spend intentional time in fellowship? I love a party, but when I'm having a margarita with some friends, That is not really fellowship, okay? It's fun. I like doing it. But actual fellowship, where you're with people in a very real and holy way, where you might, if you couldn't say to someone, life's really hard right now, and I'm not sure what to do, and I need your help, then the moment you are in, is not really fellowship. The moment you're in is fun. Fun is good. But don't mistake fun with that kind of holy relationship that we really want you to have. And then finally, worship. Not worshiping is a problem. Bless you. Worship is where we get the renewal moment. I am sympathetic that many experiences of worship are lacking. I got it. But I do think that most of the time it won't be here. And so coming matters. You know, I I told this story the other day with a group of newcomers that if you were to ask my children, should we go to church today? They would look at you like you were speaking another language they have never been asked that question it is not up to them <laughs> we go to church we just do it's never a decision because if it is a decision point then it's very likely the answer will be not today that's a problem and so for all of us you know Bob Johnson likes to say if you are here and you are not sick go to church I want to tweak it. Unless you're sick, go to church. If you're not here, still go, because you should. But really don't if you're sick. I don't want to get sick. So, teaching, fellowship, worship, prayers. Think about how you actually do those things this week. And if you feel like you don't do one of them, or two of them, or four of them very well, I feel like you guys can check off teaching, right? You're in Bible study. Good job. And those listening at home, at least you're listening at home. But if you don't have all four of those things covered, that's something you can work on this fall. Fill in those gaps. Get yourself connected. And if you don't know how, ask me. That's what we do. Let us help you fill in those gaps. Because With those gaps comes weakness, and we should all be strong in our walk. Very end of chapter 2 says, Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those are being saved. What we do is not rocket science. We have seen light in our darkness, and we are walking toward that light. If we believe that this stuff is true, how can we help but not bring others with us? Episcopalians really don't do this well because we are trying to be nice, polite people. And what I say at the beginning? That's got nothing to do with Jesus. Be loving, but if you've got opportunities to actually tell someone why this matters to you, do you love them enough to try. Dang, that sounds evangelical, doesn't it? Ha! <laughs> Y'all sitting there like, ugh, I can see it on your faces. You're like cringing this idea. <laughs> do not say to someone, do you know where you're going after you die? Do not do that. Alright? That is not what I'm talking about. What I want for all of you to feel so very filled by the experience of your christian way of life that it you just can't help it you just can't help but tell somebody when someone comes to you in pain or in sorrow or they feel lost where do you get your anchor it's here why wouldn't you want to hand them the rope too and so as you work on these four ways of being, put like a little cherry on top. The idea that we're meant to share this. We're meant to bring people here. We're meant to bring people to Christ. The best evangelist in this church is a guy who, because of some... Emotional issues Doesn't really get embarrassed He is Easily the most effective evangelist we have He will bring five ten fifteen people with him at a time to special services and programs here. Why? Because he it, it matters to him and Here's the kicker. He's not embarrassed to ask I think if we're honest, that is actually the hurdle, isn't it? We don't want to be told no. That doesn't feel good. We don't want to ask a friend to do something and then them judge us. That doesn't feel good. But remember last year, (laughs) I'll leave it to you, leave it this way, God is not overly concerned with you feeling good. (laughs) Remember that? That was one of my favorite lessons last year that you all hated. We are here to do something better than just feel good We're here to be saved and if it really matters Then why wouldn't we want to bring others with us? All right, so we've got Just a couple minutes Any ideas or questions that kick off for you? Yeah? Good question. So question is We hear Paul say love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not boastful. Love is not right Anyone go to a wedding recently you hear that every time you're at a wedding How do you balance kindness with polite and niceness? I think in the same way that happy and joy are not the same. So for example, obviously because of what I do, I sit with people who are losing loved ones all the time, right, they're either about to lose a loved one, they've just lost a loved one, maybe it's happening in the moment. And one thing I try, I say to them if it's appropriate, not always is that you can be sad and joyful at the same time. It's hard to be sad and happy. That's not the same thing. Joy is a much deeper emotion. It is not always happy, but it is always hopeful. And I think in the same way, when we say love and kind, that is a much deeper, more complex emotion which naturally makes it a more complex action than nice and polite. Nice and polite is relatively clean. Clean. You, you don't say certain things and, or you say things in a certain way and there's, there's kind of parameters and rules around that. You can love someone, and I have to think, if not everyone, most of us here have been in some situation where you chose or didn't to really love someone, and that choice was impossibly hard, because it meant perhaps a relationship broke, perhaps a person got hurt, and yet the choice was still loving. This is not easy, and I certainly am not the one who gets to say, that was actually loving and that was just mean we all have to figure out where that line is and it's so gray intention matters and I think that love and kindness is always more nuanced and complex than nice and polite it's not really crystal clear to your answer but what I don't want us to do is use those words the same way they're different. And you should never choose nice over love. We will. You will and I will and we all will because that's part of our human nature. But if we can start to work out what those differences are, and so one one way you can do this is just as you as you go about your day, think about the way that you choose how to act. If you find that most of the time, you're not doing what you think you want to do because somehow that's not polite, then I think that's one of those, one of those moments to consider, are you choosing polite over love? And if you are, the next time that happens and you f- get that same feeling, maybe you'll be ready to perhaps choose love over polite. And it's, it's always great, and I will tell you one quick story. Um, we were, as an example of this, uh, my family went down to Florida this year, and we were staying with some friends in Jacksonville, and I ran to the grocery store to pick up, I'm sure, something that was very important. I don't know, bread or something, and I'm walking through Publix, which makes me so happy. Those of you who, I'm a Floridian, I love Publix, and so whenever I can just walk through Publix, even if all I need is like gum, I'm just gonna do it, right? I'm just gonna walk through So I'm walking through, and as I'm picking out something in an aisle, a woman walks by with her child, and this child was, I'm going to guess, eight-ish. And she was berating this child and saying things like, because you did this, I forgot this, and because you did this, we had to do, and because you, and because— And it was really kind of ugly. I mean, she wasn't physically doing it, but it was all just, it was just this verbal beating. And doing so, not really loudly, but loud enough that I heard as they walked by. And I had this moment where I thought, "Eh, uh, I'll leave it alone, right? Because that's mother and her child, whatever. I'm in public, I'm so happy. Um, And so (laughs) I finished, all my stuff, and I come up to the checkout line and she's there with her child again. Still doing it. And in that moment, it had been, you know, 10 minutes or something like that. I just said from behind the cart, I really think that you should resolve whatever problem you have in a different way. Yeah, yeah. That was well received. Um, She looked at me I Did not have on a collar. I don't travel a vacation with a collar Betsy, please. Okay, so So she I mean, you know, can you just imagine like the daggers Um, and she said this is none of your business and I said, you know, it isn't my business except That she is too young for you to be speaking to her like that and you're going to ultimately harm her more than you really want to oh she Again, not well-received <laughs> and so So she begins in on me To mind my own business and so I realized in that moment. You know what? It's not about her and so I actually turned to the little girl and I said Sorry I don't, What am I so dumb? I said to her never think that you are not lovable even if she treats you badly that was it. It's not That's not polite. Right? I mean, how many people are going to say that you're supposed to talk I mean, parenting a child is one of those things where you don't you, you don't really go over a parent's authority if you can help it. That was not okay and she definitely did not like me which as nicole will tell you i do not care and so <laughs> but in that moment it was one of those kind of pivots where i wanted her to stop she's not going to listen to me who am i but i needed the little girl to hear something that could be a little bit of that hope because man that mom was not not good And so that's one of those moments where do you pick the polite? I did pick the polite first, but I had a second chance, and I didn't in that second chance. And so i leave that with you all to ponder and look forward to seeing you next week. Bye.